Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 871 with Abhinav Kapoor. When you come into a new situation and you have no idea what you're doing or what the path to success actually looks like, having someone who's navigated that path already and point out what potential mistakes you can avoid uh, or or ways in which you need to change your behavior or how you're going to go about doing the job, someone who can point those out and tell you or give you the framework, at least, for what success looks like, it's incomparable in terms of the amount of value it provides to you. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Today's episode is brought to you by Diageo Bar Academy, a company you've been hearing me reference a lot on the show lately, and that's because they're awesome. And I want to make sure you know about some new e-learning courses they have available right now. Diageo Bar Academy is always free with tons of resources that can help you build your skills at your own pace and at any level. So these courses I'm talking about, like the two courses on beer category and Guinness Essentials, just in time for St. Patrick's Day, you'll learn all there is to know about Guinness history and heritage and how you can serve a beautiful, great quality, great tasting pint every time. Learn about different beer styles and even how to enhance your guest food experience with pairings. Or if your restaurant leans more towards the spirits, then make sure you take the interactive course on spirits and food pairings. Knowing what cocktails to recommend for different moments of your guest meal can elevate their dining experience and help you improve your check averages to learn more about what diageo bar academy has to offer to grow your career visit www.diageobaracademy.com that's d-i-a-g-e-o baracademy.com become a member and be sure to opt into the newsletter today it's completely free and you will be amazed at all they have to offer that's d-i-a-g-e-o baracademy.com Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And I have to say, I haven't come across a restaurateur using Seven Shifts that hasn't been completely satisfied. Trusted by over 500,000 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the complete toolkit you need to easily manage your team's schedules, timesheets, communications, tasks, tips, and more all in one place. And because you are restaurant on Unstoppable listeners, you get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven, S-H-I-F-T-S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. Today's episode is brought to you by Talk to the Manager. Nowadays, people don't want to speak face-to-face. They rather communicate via text message and keep it anonymous. Talk to the Manager allows guests to share feedback or ask questions in a way that makes them feel comfortable and is convenient to you. And I think the most valuable aspect of Talk to the Manager is that you give people an opportunity to vent before they go public and write a negative review. Sometimes people just want to be heard and Talk to the Manager gives them that opportunity to be heard. Plus, you don't have to worry about your information being shared. Customers won't see your personal phone number, just the phone number that Talk to the Manager provides. Also, with Talk to the Manager, it's like having a secret shopper. People will tell you any issues they come across at your 
restaurants, whether you want to hear them or not, but they'll be brought to your attention and that will help you improve your business. Show your guests you care enough to listen with Talk to the Manager. Head to talktothemanager.com slash unstoppable to sign up for your 60-day trial. What up, Unstoppables? We have a great show for you today, but a quick reminder that we need your support. Please use our sponsors, click our affiliate links, share this podcast, and come hang out in Restaurant Unstoppable Network. We would love to have you. So today, we're talking to Abhinav Kapoor, and Abhinav came on my radar by way of Corey Manicone, the CEO and founder of Zool, uh, who just recently sold his business, but uh, basically... Um, my interview with Corey about delivery, the future of delivery, what was going on. Uh, we talked about the, the conversation of the great unbundling popped up and it was Abhinav Kapoor who he said I needed to talk to uh, about this great unbundling, this idea of uh, it was, it's kind of funny because for the longest time, the restaurant industry wanted to bundle all these services. So we wouldn't have multiple vendors who we had to pay. However, what we started to realize was that when we bundled these services, uh, we're not getting the best products. Uh, we have, you know, a legacy product that started for say, I don't know, like labor management. And then they started adding other features on. They're really good with labor management, but the other features weren't the best. So, the idea of the great unbundling is just like, what if we open up API? What if these technologies were best in class, but all worked with each other, but weren't necessarily the same company. So that's kind of uh, what stoked this conversation. Ironically, once I started diving into more about who Abhinav Kapoor was and what Bicky does, there's just so much, there was just so much to discuss today. So we do touch on the great unbundling, but we get so, so, so much more. Uh, we get Abhinav's backstory. We find out the, the story of Bicky, the, the benefits of Bicky, and we discuss the great unbundling. So with no further ado, here he is, Abhinav Kapoor. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, founder and CEO of Bicky, Abhinav Kapoor. Abhinav, are you feeling unstoppable today? It's today, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, it's, it's been a long two years, and uh, I got two small kids, so it, it depends on the day, but uh, today feeling unstoppable. You're doing it. So, I love yeah. it, and I cannot wait to get into your story to learn more about Bicky, to learn more about the great unbundling, to learn more about uh, how we can keep our data from these these greedy third parties <laughs> services that are out there, and they're not evil. I know that they're all, all evil, but... We won't talk talk about that yet. Uh, <laughs> let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quarter mantra. What do you got for us? Uh, sure. Yeah. So I grew up pretty spiritual. I was raised Hindu, you know, as it is with immigrant families when they come here. I, I think I grew up more religious than my family in India did. Um, Why and is that? I just people want to cling to the culture when yeah, they come here, right? They don't want to lose. They don't want to lose that piece that they mm-hmm. grew up with. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as India is modernized and it's become more secular and, and, you know, when you're an immigrant and you grow up here, you go the opposite direction. Yeah. So, but uh, my favorite Hindu mantra growing up, I'll say that and then I'll say briefly the meaning, but it's Om Abhayam Mitrat, Abhayam Amitrat, Abhayam Gyatat, Abhayam Parokshat, Abhayam Matram, Abhayam Divana, Sarva Asha Mama Bhavantu Mitram. And what it means is, may I be unafraid of the known and the unknown 
May I be unafraid of my friend or enemy. May I be unafraid of the light or the dark. May I be unafraid of everything in my path and may peace come to me from all sides. That's some wisdom right that's, there. I, that's what I, I was telling you. I have it tattooed you on got, my arm. Yeah, you so that's, on your arms. I, yeah, give, give a camera the, right, a flex right, real quick yeah, for I us. <laughs> it's, it's more of a jiggle than a flex these days, but yeah. So I got it. Yeah. So I got I that on my 30th birthday. But so, I mean, yeah. the, the underlying message to me is don't be afraid. Yeah. I, well, so look, I think it is, it's very easy to look at the future and, and, and there's a lot of uncertainty in the world and it is very easy to be afraid of that. I think as people, that is the natural reaction to look at the future, to look at uncertainty and to think, I don't know what's going to happen. And that inherently scares me. And so the tendency is to stay in your, uh, in your, in your zone of comfort. Yeah. Um, and this to me, and I, it's not like just because it's tattooed on my arm, I stick to it all the time. Uh, but it's there because when I'm in the shower in the morning or when I'm just sitting at my desk or I'm having a tough day, it's just a reminder that like growth is supposed to be uncomfortable. Growth is supposed to be full of fear and uncertainty. And the best that you can do is try and face it. Uh, with the understanding that fear is natural because without fear, you know, it's that old line from game of Thrones. Like how does somebody learn to be brave by facing what they fear? Yeah. Uh, and so it's just a constant reminder. And especially as I'm building a company, being a parent, you know, trying to be a good husband, trying to be a good partner to our restaurant customers. There's fear that's embedded in all of those relationships. Uh, and so it's just about like, how do I face that fear and continually progress and get better? Each yeah. Day? So. And one of the things I'm most passionate about, and I think is going to be a solution, uh, to our future in any vertical, not just the restaurant industry is the the answers to our future are in our past. Yeah. And I'm a huge fan of anthropology and just the studying of, of humans and what makes us us. And when we learn about our past and how we got to where we were 10,000 years ago, we still have a lot of characteristics we just don't need anymore. Right. And, and one of those characteristics is fear, right. you know, and, and we developed a level of fear to survive and we are apex predators today. We, but we still have that, those genes that make us afraid because we don't know if that lion is going to be popping out of the bushes right. any second, you know? Right. So it's important to recognize that a level of fear is good. It keeps us it's aware. Yeah. 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 But at the same time, we will be anxiety stricken, like, Fools! If we right. just if we let that succumb fear, to it, exactly. Yeah. We we have to remind ourselves. Yeah. Fear is good. It makes us look into the future. It makes us project. But at the same time, it can be crippling, and you have to learn to let go of that fear right. sometimes. So awesome way right. to get this thing started. And I mean, this is kind of an unusual like hybrid interview for me. You are by all means an entrepreneur. Yeah. So there's definitely going to be some motivation and inspiration here. Some great life lessons, I'm sure. Uh, but you also are. are going to give us kind of a lecture too into some of the things <laughs> that you do with Dickie and some of the best practices you learned and uh, we're also going to look into the future but let's start again with just who you are and how you got here so you are like you mentioned immigrant uh, yep. immigrant parents uh, they what did they do when they came here uh, it was you know so my dad well so I was born in Dubai and we moved here when I was about two years old uh, my mom, my mom has an incredible story. So, uh, she was a lab technician for about a little over a decade and was like, I need to find another job. I need something else to do. Um, she just, you know, she was a biochemistry major back in India 
And uh, she went back to Stony Brook, State University of Stony Brook on Long Island, uh, near where I grew up, and uh, became a physician assistant. And she's been a physician assistant now for the last 15 years or so. Um, my dad came over, uh, was a civil engineer. He went to Delhi College of Engineering in New Delhi. So was a civil engineer for, you know, from the time I was two here in the States all the way until... I was 19, and then he opened a 7-Eleven. He became a 7-Eleven franchisee, uh, opened a store, and he's had the store. He's had one store, then two stores, and now he's back to one store uh, ever since then. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's just like, it, it's, I think, like, the you were, you were talking about, like, how did I get here? How did I, be an, how did I become an entrepreneur? I mean, like, I look at my parents and what they went through and what they sacrificed just for me to get to this point, and I think that's, like, partially the inspiration and then i'm sure we'll dive into this but like the inspiration for bicky itself like that's the inspiration for my life and like how i how i want to act according to principle and without fear and and paying it forward the way they did for me and then you know i'm sure we'll talk about this but the inspiration for bicky at large is actually my in-laws because they're the ones who very similar to my parents came here uh and you know didn't know the language didn't know the culture had various odd jobs, uh, bank teller, grocery store cashier, hotel desk clerk. My mom, you know, my mother-in-law was a travel agent, and and then she ended up starting a restaurant here in New York City 21 years ago. So I saw uh, that, and, and I was, that was yeah, okay, I didn't yeah. realize it was the in-laws. Yeah, it was my in-laws. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you know, we've been, uh, it's Indian culture, so it's like my parents are mom and dad, and my in-laws are mommy and papa, and then it's flipped for my for my, uh, for my my wife. It's the same, you know, it's like it's a meshing of the two families in Indian culture. So it's basically when I say mom, sometimes I mean mother-in-law, but yeah. So what was it? You didn't have any restaurant experience prior to zero. No. Yeah. So what was it like marrying? I mean, aside from Domino's, I delivered Domino's pizza (laughs) one summer. (laughs) That's, and I worked in a deli that same summer. That was the extent of my, was it eye opening? Was it jarring to kind of see the stress and challenges associated with running a restaurant like that? You'd never had that exposure before. Yeah. I think, um, what? When I was, so when, when my wife and I were dating and I saw them, you know, we were dating in, we started dating in 2008. And so that's when I started to really understand it. Cause we had been friends before. So I'd seen the restaurant. So at this point you're still young, dude, you're 22, 23 yeah, years old, yeah, just graduating yeah. college. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we got, so the way it works is like she and I became friends in the summer of 06. We worked on a political campaign together here in the city. And that's when I started really like understanding who her parents are and, and you know, that they have a restaurant and New York in Oh five Oh six was quote unquote boom times, right? It was post nine 11 post recession. Things were going up. Finance was rocking. Country was coming back. Mm-hmm. And so I only saw when I first, when we were first became friends, I only saw the peak times when stuff was good with the restaurant yeah. industry. No labor issue. I mean, it's always been hard, but yeah. like labor issues, were relatively mild restaurants were, the restaurant was full every night. Delivery was just starting right with seamless at that time. And it was only big corporate offices like law firms and banks that were ordering delivery and expensing meals for their employees. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it was delivery was online ordering rather was new but it wasn't cannibalistic to the business in the way many restaurant operators feel that it can be now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so those are the good times. And then we got married or rather, you know, we got, we graduated college in 08. We started dating. We got more serious and 08, 09, you have the great recession. Yeah. 
And then you start to really see how tough the restaurant industry can be. Hard at the best of times, incredibly tough. I don't need to tell anybody watching this now over the last two years how hard it can be at the worst of times. Uh, But that's when I got the close-up look and it's like, Labor issues, supply chain issues, inventory issues, pricing issues. How do you even just get butts in seats? Like basics, basic questions that are important to the survival of the industry. Um, and that was eye opening. I, I was still in finance at the time, so yeah. like I didn't. It was like at a glance, right? I could. I was like, wow, that's hard. I'm gonna go do my job. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, it, it was definitely eye opening to see. I'm sure your yeah. the the in laws will come back into the story at yeah. some point. Yeah. But now again, the times 2008, 2009, you are on a path to be what? What's your goal for your, yeah. at this point in your life? So my, I mean, my first job out of college was cleaning up bank failures uh, for the FDIC during the financial crisis. So I graduated college. I was living in DC in 08. That was my first job. Uh, grew up on Long Island, wanted to move back to New York. Uh, so I got a job in investment banking. I was doing uh, mergers and acquisitions for banks. So very <laughs> eyes gloss over, but right. it was fun to me at the time. And, you know, I thought I was going to build a career on Wall fun, Street. Uh, yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> That's, I mean, you know, you're working 100 hours a week, getting paid well. You were, you know, yeah, it's I like, um, but I thought I was going to build a career on Wall Street. That was the, that was the goal. That was, you know, I was where I wanted to be. I was doing work that I enjoyed with people that I enjoyed working long hours, but, uh, but, it, but it felt worth it. Um, I did that for about five and a half years. Uh, until, you know, it was actually a very clear moment for me where I looked in, and this is, you know, a narrative throughout, I think all of my experience, I looked at like the people that were ahead of me, you know, the MDs, the, the VPs, the senior folks ahead of me. And I realized that they were still working 80 to a hundred hours a week that m- not most, but at least a good chunk of the ones I worked with had families, but were divorced. Uh, they were traveling all the time, so they weren't really the only time they had with their kids was was holidays when kids were off from school. And I was just like, I don't, I don't know if I want that. Mm. Um, and and still, you know, where and the work itself was interesting for four and a half years, and I would say that last twelve months it was more of the same. And I was just like, all right, there's got to be something more to this. So that combination of the, the nature of the work combined with kind of like looking five to 10 years in the future and being like, I don't think I want that, uh, is what led me to leave investment banking. And that was like so. 2014. From there you went to BTIG LLC. What right. Was that? Right. Yeah. So it was another wall street firm. Uh, but instead of doing investment banking, I was doing equity research. So investment banking is like, how do you help one company buy another company? Or, uh, this one company is a private company and they want to list on the New York stock exchange how do you sell their stock to investors for the to public investors for the very first time? So okay, so that's the investment banking piece. I'll be honest, I, like, I don't really know that world very right, well. Right. Um, and my, my, I was curious, how do you jump from being an analyst, investment banker, dude, to being an entrepreneur startup? But yeah, yeah. after listening to the description of it, like when you're talking about mergers and acquisitions and putting a value to a company, you learn really quick how to build companies and the elements of a company. And, and I, I'm seeing I think you learn how to build it via a spreadsheet, <laughs> which is yeah, very different. But, than you, the practical. but you can at yeah. least see on paper, like the yeah. elements of a business. Yeah. Right. And okay. Yeah. So, uh, from that, you know that, okay, well, what are you selling when you're selling a business? What are you selling? Right. You're right. selling systems, processes, procedures, a uh, culture, a yep. uh, uh, you know, EBITDA or whatever, like, right. you know, all these things, a lot of people who get into the restaurant industry or any business, uh, 
don't start with the big picture of how to be super successful. They just start not like ignorance is bliss, right? right? Like I'm right. just going to start. And then they're forced to learn all that stuff because if they don't learn it, they're going to fail. Right. But I think what you got is a really good kind of I think it was like a, good, a crash yeah. course in, yeah. in entrepreneurism and business in general. Like, yeah. It was a good foundation yeah. for sure. I think it was a good foundation. And then, you know, from there going to BTIG, I went to equity research, which is the person that says you should buy this stock because it's going to go from X to Y in the next 12 months. Mm-hmm. And here, you know, so like mergers and acquisitions, you're looking at one deal, which is a snapshot in time. Equity research, you're really understanding the story of a company and the story they tell investors. So like, what's their product? What's their strategy? Um, how much do they pay their salespeople? Why are their salespeople more motivated and compensated? How does their product fit with other products like it in the market? How are they competing? Is what they're doing unique, differentiated, valuable? All the things that really going into making a company what it is and really starting to understand that. And so going from investment banking to equity research, investment banking gave me like the hard skills to like do an Excel model and understand like how to project and how to use assumptions to get to an answer that you think is believable. Uh, and then equity research really taught me like the qualitative story piece on top of that and why and how that can filter into the numbers. Um, and my goal when I went to equity research was I want to be a publishing Wall Street analyst by the time I'm 30. That was my goal. So I left BTI, I left Bank of America in 2014 and I was, you know, how old was I? I was like 28 years old at the time, 27 years old at the time. And uh, I was like, I want to be a publishing analyst. That's that's my goal, which means I want to be the one with the name on the report saying buy this stock and here's how much it's worth. And then I did that, right? Like I, I went to BTIG. It took me, you know, two and a half years and then I did that. And then once I did that, I was like, well, shit, like I did what I wanted to do. Uh, what do I do next? <laughs> and that's when I started thinking like maybe long-term fine. It was that same moment where you're looking five years out and I was looking at people who had been analysts for years. And it was the same thing. It was like they were traveling all the time. They were, they didn't really see their families. They didn't really see their kids. And the work didn't really change as I, as you got older. And I was just like, I, I need something a little more dynamic. I need, like, that's not necessarily the future I want. So I should think about doing something so, else. I mean, out of all this experience you got um, doing what you were doing, what were the biggest lessons you learned that you think contributed to your, your success? Lessons that are just, no matter what verticals, I know you're in the tech world, yeah. um, but no, no matter what vertical you're in, as far as business goes, these are just lessons to, that can help you yeah. be successful. Uh, the biggest thing that honestly is just, you have a mentor that believes in you or, or a few people that actually believe in you and take a chance on you. Why is that so important? When you come in and when you come into a new situation and you have no idea what you're doing, and you have no idea even where to begin or what the path to success actually looks like. Having someone who's navigated that path already and point out what potential mistakes you can avoid uh, or, th- or ways in which you need to change your behavior or how you're going to go about doing the job, someone who can point those out and tell you or give you the framework at least for what success looks like is it's incomparable in terms yeah. of the amount of value it provides to you. Yeah. And I can't remember. And that word. is true of every job. Like that's true even of this startup stuff that I'm doing. Yep. Like, yeah. yeah. So, and you said, I think I can't remember the, the exact words, but you, I think you said that who believes in you. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a key part to 
And I see it time and time again when I'm talking to restaurateurs. I'm like, when did you know that this was going to be your path? Like, when did you know that this is for you? And more times, more often than not, the reason why people are on this path is because there was a mentor, somebody who said, you're good at this. You have what it takes. You could go somewhere. And because I don't think we're that self-aware. You know, yeah. So when you get that yeah. reinforcement of like you're talented, like you got what it takes, right. so you can go places. That that mentor is putting you on I, a path. Yeah, I know? mean, we I, we did it. We we signed a large customer yesterday, and uh, and which I'm very thankful for and grateful for. And you know, I was talking to one of my advisors, and they were like, "How do you feel? This is this is huge for you." I'm like, well, yeah, but like now we got to onboard them and now we got to make sure that we're successful with them because we've got to prove to them that we can do this. All the things we said we can do, we got to right. do. Yeah. We got to do it. And then I got to find the next one and the next one and the next one. And he was, and he was just like, you need to chill out for a second <laughs> and like enjoy the fact that you did this. Like yeah. this, like if you don't stop to savor the little victories along the way and if you don't give yourself the space to instead of like what next what next what next what next it's not good enough like really that's what it is oh it's not good enough it's not good enough i gotta do more i gotta do more i gotta do more if you don't stop to basically like give yourself the validation that i just did something that's that that is good enough and i am on the right path and sure there are things that i can do better but i've already gotten to this point and i know that i could you know continue ironing out those kinks and get to the next milestone um you know, without that, without those, like savoring those small victories, like why, why else are you doing this? You yeah. know, like, yeah. So, yeah, exactly. it's like, what's that, what's that old quote? Like I was thinking about this cause I was talking to my dad about this and I had the same exact conversation with him and, uh, and I forget the name and it's like, and, uh, of the conqueror that the, the poem is about. And he's like, and, and he looked on his kingdom and he wept cause he had nothing cause he had no more lands left to conquer. Right. And it's just like, don't be in that position. Yeah. Like you have to fall in love with the process. And that's true of, again, of any, of any business that you're doing, you have to fall in love with the process and the art of trying to figure it out and the art of executing on it. Otherwise you're not going to enjoy the top of the mountain when you get there. Yeah. If man. you do get there. Awesome stuff. I have nothing to add to that. I am curious. You said something along the lines of, um, you learned, and I was making notes here, but somehow I deleted them. So I'm going to try to go off memory <laughs> here. Uh, the, the quantitative storytelling, you learned the art of the quant, like, or tying the qual- the quantitative part the qualitative of the quant- yeah. to the story. Yeah. And I think there's some, some lesson there that, that, that is transferable to right. the restaurant. hundred percent. Yeah. So get into that. What you meant by that. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, hospitality is in part the art of telling a good story and in part executing on that story. Right. If I, if I go back to my mother-in-law, the name of her restaurant is Amma. Amma means mother. And her story is to, when you come to her corner of the world on 51st and 2nd, her story is to make you feel like you are getting home-cooked, a fine dining, home-cooked Indian meal uh, that is a place that is your haven from the world or from the streets outside. And that's the story. That's the qualitative piece. The quantitative piece is if you are able to deliver on that story, on that qualitative promise, there is a price associated with that, right? It's it's not just about like low budget, quick meal, in, out, move on. It's about executing on this white tablecloth fine dining experience that commands a premium because she's putting a lot of work into cultivating this environment, this atmosphere, this culture, this story. Um, and so thinking about like, 
that qualitative story, it starts from that principle, right? What you want to put into the world starts from that principle or that vision. And then you have to take the quantitative piece that makes that vision sustainable Mm -hmm. and that makes that vision uh, profitable for you. And I think a lot of, like every restaurant does that. McDonald's is about value and convenience. And so they can afford to charge less for the food they serve because it's about volume and it's about throughput. It's throughput, right? And so again, like the financial output is always a result of what are the inputs, what are the qualitative inputs and the story and the philosophy about your business, your brand, your restaurant, and then what's the financial model that makes that possible and sustainable, most importantly, sustainable. I think this is really important as we go into the future because you're seeing a shift right now where like, like conscious capitalism is on the rise, I believe. And what I mean by that is people are, are spending money based off of what they know is right, the right thing to do. And they're willing to spend more money to do the right thing to, to, to support a a business that uses sustainable packaging, you know, like all the things that you do that are because of a reason that is the, the right thing to do. Put that shit front and center. Yeah. You know, like don't hide that. Don't be don't be subtle about that. Like put that in the front because people are are making purchasing decisions based off of stuff that pulls on the strings of their heart. You know? Yeah. And you gotta know what it is that you do. You gotta know what your unique selling propositions are. The things that if the obstacle is the way, what is the obstacle? And make sure everybody knows you're going through that shit every day. You know, yep. and, and put that, and that's what I think of when I hear you yep. say something along the lines of understanding the, the, the quantitative side of the story. Right. Like, um, so how do you, what, what advice do you have for people for understanding that and putting that in the forefront? I am getting, I, you know, I tell all of our restaurant partners to do this and I'm getting better at it myself, but I don't think it's anything different from what you just said, which is, you know, pulling back the curtain a bit and actually telling people what you're going through. Mm-hmm. Like, honestly, like my mother and my, my mother-in-law, I was like, people know she, like the way she works is she knows her guest names, their faces, what they eat, what they drink when they come in store and they come in store and she tells them everything that's happening. Oh, you like this dish? I came up with the recipe seven years ago and we actually modified it two weeks ago because we added this inst- this spice instead of this or we changed the the cream that we used to enrich the, the the sauce or we changed our supplier of chicken and so she is openly communicating literally shit that's happening in her day to her guests to make them feel like part of the story and part of the experience yeah they're on the inside and that's now. and honestly like it's it's i think it's not that sounds Intimidating, but it's not. It's like I tell our customers this all the time. I'm like, they're like, oh, how do we communicate our story to our customers? And I'm like, why'd you start the business? Just like write an email about three sentences on why you started this restaurant. That's it. And then they're like, oh, how do we follow that up? Cool. Write another story about what you were doing before that, three sentences, and why that wasn't good enough and why you felt like you need to start this restaurant. And then talk the next email, talk about your favorite menu item and why this menu item is your favorite and what it means to you. Three to four sentences. And it's those little snippets of just taking the stuff that's in your head and distilling it into a way that it can be easily communicated to your guests and conveying that story. That's what builds the relationships. Like, you know, we used to hear this all the time from restaurants. I want to be like Sweet Green. What does Sweet Green do? Sweet Green, in a very simple way, brings you along for the ride. They, tell, they show you a picture of the farmer. 
of where their special beats are coming from. Yeah. Right. Or they tell you about why they do the packaging in this way and why it's sustainable and why it matters to them. It's all things that they give a shit about and they're just telling you about it so that you give a shit about it too. And the consumer is noticing right now that the prices are going up. Right. All of a sudden, it's really expensive to order out. Right. And, and I think it's a good thing that the restaurant industry is finally putting their foot down and the prices ref- are starting to more reflect the cost of doing business. Sure, yeah. Which is a good thing, but you got to let people know. you got to yeah. educate people why it costs more. Yeah. You want healthy, organically raised, no GMO food right. like that source locally, right. that guess what? Here's what it costs. That's a lot more yeah, expensive. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You don't want to ruin the, yeah. the the environment. Well, guess what? We don't use styrofoam packaging. Yeah. We use this packaging. That Educate people why your food costs what it right. is. And what will happen is people will start to go to you because they will feel they will f- it won't it's not just a meal anymore it's 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 a it, it strikes deeper into like the higher right. needs of individuals where they feel like they're they're growing that they're doing the right thing and that they're giving back and that stuff goes a long way right i think we 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 made our our case we pleaded our case <laughs> that this is important stuff uh and anything else before we kind of talk about the we we take a break to thank our sponsors and we start talking about the evolution of Bicky. uh i mean no i i think well we haven't uh, I'm excited to actually dive in on what we do. Yeah, <laughs> I think right. more than anything, but yeah, yeah I mean, no. it's a, it, I think we covered the ground in terms of how we got here. Yeah, uh, exactly. So, yeah. And I'm loving the conversation. Yeah. So uh, we're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors and we'll be right back to dive into the origin story of Bicky and, and how this all started. This episode is brought to you by Diageo Bar Academy. And you've been hearing me talk about Diageo Bar Academy on my podcast for some time now. Uh, Diageo Bar Academy is a totally free resource for bartenders, bar managers, and those in the hospitality industry. Today, I want to tell you about some of these amazing new e-learning courses they have available right now. And again, a reminder, Diageo Bar Academy is always free with tons of resources that help you build your skills at your own pace and at any level. So back to these courses, like the two courses on beer category and Guinness Essentials, just in time for St. Patrick's Day too. You'll learn all there is to know about Guinness history and heritage and how you can serve a beautiful, great quality, great tasting pint every time. Learn about different beer styles and even how to enhance your guest food experience with pairings. Or if your restaurant's more geared towards the booze, if you want to learn more about balancing flavors with spirits and food pairings, take the interactive course Spirits and Food Pairings. Knowing what cocktails to recommend for different moments of your guest meal can elevate the dining experience and help your check average. Diageo Bar Academy online courses offer real-life skills to help you grow in your career. They are always free, interactive, and each e-learning course takes less than 30 minutes. And you receive a certificate upon completion, which you can view on your profile at any time. To learn more about what Diageo Bar Academy has to offer to grow your career, visit www.diageobaracademy.com. That's D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com. Become a member and be sure to opt into the newsletter today. It's completely free and you will be amazed at all they have to offer. That's D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com. Dot com. We're back, and now we are getting into the story of Bicky. Uh, and kind of just take us to the point where you decided to get off this path of financial analysts, yeah. or you know, you, you told us what you wanted to do. When did the story start to change for you to be like, well, maybe I want to be a tech startup? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, 
So like I said, I got to that point. I I, I hit that milestone, like equity analyst by the time I'm 30. Uh, and started to think about life post-finance. And startups were just really emerging in New York at that time. Uh, I mean, there's always been a good startup community, but this was 2015 at the time, 2015, 2016. Yeah. And it was just starting to build, really. And so I just started interviewing. I said, you know, there were a lot of, there were some other finance people that I worked with, some of my colleagues from my last job that were moving into startups. So I was like, let me just start interviewing and get to know the community, get to know some folks. Got a couple offers and... For better or worse, I've always been the kind of person that like I need to like feel that whatever I do from a work standpoint, like my whole body and soul and mind has to be committed to it. And so the offers I got, they were great offers to work with great people, but I just didn't identify with the mission of those businesses. And so I said to myself, like, if I'm going to leave this path of certainty, it has to be for something that like I can that I would feel comfortable legitimately like dedicating the next 10 years of my life to the way I dedicated nine years of my life to finance. Um, How are you pitching yourself to these, these startups? What, what solution were you going to be to them? I was going to be their first finance hire, okay. build their model. Uh, you know, one of the offers was with another uh, company serving small businesses. And it was, we want to spin up a new line of business, uh, like a new line of revenue. And you would be working with our co with one of our co-founders on basically launching this from start to finish. And in order to do that, we need somebody who has serious financial modeling chops, who understands, who can understand this business, learn this business, and essentially like run the PNL for this business. Um, which when I say it now is crazy <laughs> that like someone would trust a 30 year old with potentially this right. opportunity. Um, uh, 30 years old at the time, but, and so, you know, again, it, it wasn't, it was a great, it was a great story, great mission, great investors, great company, great people. It's just the mission wasn't for me. Which is another big lesson for anybody who's starting a business out yeah. there or has a business. Like, is your mission clear? What is it? Again, right. back to conscious capitalism. We were talking about appealing to your consumer. You also have to appeal to your employee. What are you giving them beyond a paycheck? Right. They mm-hmm. want a sense of contributing to something right. greater than a paycheck. We need to feel like we're growing, like we have, like you're, you're tapping into that self-actualization of yeah. like your purpose. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. so great stuff there. So eventually, I mean, you were with this company, BTIG. Yeah. I'm assuming they had a mission that appealed to you. What was that? No, I mean, it was, it was more so the opportunity, right. To like, again, like be an equity analyst, learn this side of the business, understand companies, like truly understand like what makes a company, a company, and they were just giving me that opportunity. Like, again, I wanted to stay in finance. So the mission was be an analyst on Wall Street. Um, that was more of a personal mission than anything. And the company itself was the vehicle for helping me achieve that dream. And then when I was thinking about leaving, you know, some startup offers didn't take them. Uh, and, you know, I still continue to have the urge of like, I either need to find a company that really aligns with what I want to exist in the world, or I need to think of my own thing. Um, and that's when, again, like, being in finance was serendipitous because my office at BTIG was two blocks away from my in-laws restaurant. So I used to just go by and pick up lunch. And, you know, it got to the point where whenever I would go by and pick up lunch, I would see my mother-in-law increasingly in the back of the restaurant staring at delivery tablets instead of up front talking to her guests. And, and if you go back to what I told you earlier, like being in the front of house is how she built a two-star New York Times rated restaurant. 
like without a background in hospitality in over 20 years. And as she increasingly gravitated towards back of house looking at delivery tablets, I was just like, what, are you, what is she doing? Why is she ignoring everything that made this business successful in the first place? And, uh, you know, it was at the point I remember going back there one day and she's looking at a Grubhub tablet and she's got a pen and a notebook and she's writing down a phone number of a guest who ordered a delivery in the notebook so that she could call them to see how the delivery went. And I was like, why are you doing that? And she's like, well, I have no idea who this person is. I have no connection with them. I have no idea if they had a good experience. I have no idea if they'll come back. So like, I need to call them. You know, I need to understand if the product we're putting out there and if the experience and if the service, I know it's good in store, but how is that translating to delivery? Uh, and I was just like that. I was like, that's wild. First of all, nobody does that, you know? Yeah. Second of all, like, you know, and, and when I was an equity analyst at the time, I was covering companies like Shopify and Salesforce and HubSpot and Adobe and all these tech companies that talked about the power of customer data and how having customer data was going to be the key to future business success because it helps you build more more in deeper relationships. It's the 80-20 rule. Right. 80% of your profit comes from 20% of your right. guests, right? Right. So it's, it's, um, it's all about bringing those people back. And the yeah. more you know about them, the more you can tailor fit the experience to their needs, to their, you right. predict them, right? Right. The more the knowledge is power. Data is, is power. Right. Right. Uh, right. So, so yeah, keep going. No, that's what I was saying. So, you know, like again, that uh, seeing her do that, I was like, there's got to be a way to help restaurants. Like, how do, I became obsessed with this idea of like, how do I help my mother-in-law scale herself and scale her approach to hospitality, right, to all of her customers? So, are you thinking like so, it's a bad thing that she is looking at tablets and not faces, and you want to no, be able to I, replace that? You know, I, what's I, going on? I, I used to. I, I used to. Uh, I used to think that it was a fundamentally bad thing, um, and then my stance over time has moderated, where like. I, I'm actually less of the opinion where it's like fuck third party or like screw third party. You know, I'm I think what I think of is third party is great at being a top of funnel for restaurants. It's great at helping them bring new customers. Where the gap is is that restaurants don't have their own infrastructure, systems, processes in place. So that if a third party has the first order, they have everything they need to get the second, third, fourth, yeah. fifth order and build a relationship with that guest. Oh man, I'm kicking myself so, for not knowing the name of this book. I just had uh, the author of um, it's a delivery book that just came out not that long ago. You know, oh, uh, Meredith and Carl. Yes, yeah, thank yeah, you yeah, very much. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Delivering the, the digital restaurant. Yes, yeah, thank you. It was a great book. Yeah, great book. Um, lots of really interesting numbers in that book. And I think one of them was something along the lines that if 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 somebody goes through a third party, they're something like eighty percent more likely to continue to use those tools and resources. Yeah. I think, yeah. I, I don't know the, exactly the numbers are, but the numbers are not in the restaurant, the small restaurant's favor. They're not. Uh, and the small restaurant doesn't have the tools to, like, keep in mind, these third parties are collecting the data. Yeah. So they're also improving their systems for keeping those customers because yep. they have all these touch points. That's they, right. they, and they have the money to reduce friction and to That's like right. and to do these like little A B testing to get that consumer yeah. locked into their friggin' tools. Yeah. And once they're in the once you have the power of habit, right? Once you've developed these habits and they're associated to a specific tool, yeah. the likelihood of getting them off those third parties, because they're now these parties are are, are in, these third parties are ingrained into their habits yeah. and their rituals. So that's the thing I think that's actually gonna change now when we when we talk about uh you know, you're talking about earlier with pricing, right? I think 
you know, <laughs> it's so funny. It's like when people order, when my friends order from third party apps, they always end up ordering from the same like five restaurants. You know, it's like the point of the third party app is to give you convenience aggregate. and choice yeah. and aggregate. Yeah. And then people end up reordering from the same handful of places over and over and over. Um, and I think one of the things that's going to change, and so that's why we focus so much on like, what is the infrastructure that needs to exist from a data and marketing standpoint so that the restaurant, when this customer comes direct, the restaurant has the means to serve them, engage them, and retain them. And so... We say that again. What, what, what is the what that needs to exist? What, what's the data and marketing infrastructure that needs to exist so that the restaurant can serve them, engage them, and retain them? Okay. On their own platforms. And if you look at how like pricing is changing and how we are getting to the point now where consumers are starting to understand the true cost of convenience and the true cost of ordering from a third-party platform, restaurants are going to look like a better bargain. Ordering directly from the restaurant and or going directly to the restaurant is going to be a better bargain than ordering from a third-party app. Okay. I want to get into this. Um specifically pull back the layers on this, yeah. but back to your mother-in-law. Yeah. And you, <laughs> said, you said that you wanted to create something. So like back to the idea of what is Bicky? Why did it come into right. existence? You wanted to help the restaurant owner uh, scale what your, your mother was doing every day. Right. So what do you mean by that? Get into like exactly what it is that you were helping her scale. Right. It's just the, the data collection. Uh, no, I mean, it's the engagement piece too, right? It's yeah. this, it's this idea that, you know, and and I hear this when I when I describe what we do to friends, they're like, "Yeah, I think it's amazing." I go to the same place, the same restaurant once a week, and um, I don't get any recognition. I mean, I'll go, I'll still go because I love the food and I love the atmosphere, but I don't really get recognition from the restaurant themselves that like I'm a loyal customer. And so, something very simple that we do is you can set up a trigger in Bicky where it's like, whenever someone places their fifth order all time. Just send them an email from the owner, from the chef, from the local store manager that says thank you. Mm-hmm. Hey, this is your fifth time. Thanks so much for coming. Thanks for trusting us with your business. Thanks for being a part of our community. It's, so it's it's those like little micro touch points yeah. across the customer journey that are based on a guest behavior and these, automating that. These touch so, points are automatic though. Totally automatic. Um, automated. Yeah. Is that, do you think... Once the consumer understands that this isn't a a person on the other end, this is an automation. Is it going to carry the same weight? I think I'm, I think so. And and the reason I say that is because it is tied to their behavior. It's not like a random. You know, I think the gap between personalized email and mass market spray and pray email in restaurants specifically is so wide, right? Like I get I get an email. Give an example. I get a push notification from Domino's every Friday. Two medium pizzas, six ninety nine. I open the app. It's a picture of pepperoni pizza. That's awesome. Except I'm vegetarian, and I've been the only thing I ever order from Domino's is cheesy bread and a thin crust medium pizza with jalapenos and onions. That's that's all I ever order from Domino's. They know this. They should know this. Mm-hmm. They should know that I don't eat pepperoni. I don't eat meat. That I only order veggies on my pizza and I only order cheesy bread. But there's still a gap, a huge gap, even with best-in-class restaurants in terms of how they are leveraging their guest data and turning that into a delightful guest experience. Mm -hmm. So even if this email from a local store owner, from a local restaurant owner is automated, the key thing that we do is we tie it to the guest behavior. It's not 
a random out of the blue thanks for being a loyal customer. It's like you have your fifth visit. The next day, it's a follow up and, yeah. and, and a little touch point that is personalized. So let's just so. unpackage Bicky for a second. Yeah. Like what? So how do you define Bicky? What is Bicky? Yeah, we call ourselves a CRM for restaurants. CRM stands for customer relationship management. Okay, and what are the like? What's happening? Like, what's what's going on behind the scenes? Yeah. Like, what are like, what are the tools? What are the appendages of Bicky? Yeah, so the, uh, we we have integrations across a restaurant's channels. So we plug into their point of sale system, their reservation system, their online ordering system, their loyalty platform. We pull all of that data together so that we can track the entire customer journey meaning who's ordering, what they're ordering, when they're ordering, how frequently they're ordering, uh, you know, what menu items they're ordering, all that stuff. So you're not creating these things as much as you're tying them together. Yeah. So, so the, I think that was the, I, you know, going back to like my mother-in-law's story, it was like she's chasing after tablets and writing down phone numbers. What you said is spot on. The third parties have invested billions excuse me, into, into pulling uh, into into optimizing their usage of customer data, right? Because they know that if they can optimize every tap, every app open, every push notification, every paid social media campaign, they can own the customer journey and they yeah. can own the customer's attention. Yeah, that's that's what they're selling is that's what data they're selling. That's or what they're data. Um, right. Somebody corrected me that I say data or there should be an S, data's, data's, plural, it's plural. I don't know. Potato, potato. I just say data, data. (laughs) I'm just knucklehead and deal with it. I'm sorry. Yeah. And so, and so what we do, what we do is, and, and where the story initially began was like, what data does my mother-in-law's restaurant have that could even come close to competing with this? Right. And so I looked at her POS system. We look, she had, she's been, by that time she'd been in business for 15 years. She had 15 years worth of email, worth of email addresses in her open table account that she had been doing nothing with. So that's what we were trying to unlock. She's already got a history of all of her customers' visits over 15 years sitting in OpenTable, and she was not leveraging any of it. So we're getting access to this, this data, but we're not doing anything Correct. like this. So, Correct. So B- Bicky doesn't just help you get access to it, but, uh, but there's more. You also have like, – is there like, – do you have your own email marketing like stack, like technology framing – or do you outsource for that? Or, we, or so so typically a lot of the restaurants we work with work with a separate email provider like MailChimp. Uh, and then so what we are doing is we are plugging into all of their restaurant-specific systems, pulling all that data together. Because our philosophy is like the data is there. You just don't access it. You just don't know how to access it. And then you don't know what to do with it. And so we plug in with all these sources, point of sale, reservations, online ordering. We pull it all together. And then we give you a way to make it actionable by pushing it to, to MailChimp, to, to an email service provider. And then we do the revenue reporting on every single email so that we can say to the restaurant, like, hey, you ran this campaign. You sent it out to 5,000 people. Here's how, much, here's how many of those people actually came back and placed an order or a reservation within the next seven days. And so here's the actual revenue that we can tie to this email campaign. So I'm a new customer, right? Yeah. I just I'm, I hear Bicky is getting what I think you guys said 25 percent increase in return customers or something like that. I think that's yeah, one of the numbers. For, I saw. Yeah, for new customers. Like, well, yeah. that sounds yeah. good because I know that yeah. I I'm, all the money I'm going to make is going to come from reoccurring customers. Yeah. I want I want to increase that number by 25 percent. Right. Um, I decide to purchase your services. What do I get? What what? How does my life change now that Bicky's a part I of? Think, my life? I think that's I think. The best way I can describe it is we work with a brand called Avocadaria uh, here in New York. It's three locations. And 
you know, the way he described us is we can focus on serving our customers and Bicky is the marketing machine behind us. So when you come in, the idea is how do we help you get this data and use this data in a way that still enables you as a restaurant operator to go about your business in terms of focusing on the most important stuff that you need to focus on labor, staff, inventory, uh, training, uh, menu planning, opening new locations. But at the end of the day, the thing that you shouldn't have to worry about when you have Bicky is the ability to send targeted personalized email engagement to your guests. That's based on their behavior. Most restaurant operators are like, I don't have time to do emails. I don't have time to you know, blast everybody. I don't know if it's worth it. I don't know how to marketing measure it. Marketing in general is a full-time job right. to do it well. Exactly. That's one of my issues with marketers is they're always like, this is how easy social media is. Right. And like, like, yeah, conceptually, it's conceptually. not difficult. It's easy to post. Yeah. But what to post, when to post, how frequently to post. Right. Like, so we, yeah. solve, we try to solve all those problems. We basically say like, here are, and we have a list, here are 10 email automations that we can launch for you in your first month with Bicky. Here's, here's, here's the impact. Here's who they get sent to. Uh, and then it's totally set it and forget it. So it's like once you invest the time to actually get these launched, you never have to think about them again. They're just going to run in the background for you, engaging your guests for you while you do other things, while you basically build the business. Um, so, so it's trying to put marketing on autopilot, essentially. So for you... So I, I pay for this service. I, I now have Bicky in my back pocket and they are taking care of all the marketing so I can focus on all those things that you mentioned before. Yep. Uh, what does that really, like, what does that like dialogue look like between you and the client? Like how, how do you take over that part of their world and what, what does your work look like? Yeah. Uh, great question. And we have a, we have a really great onboarding team that works with all of our restaurant partners through this process, but it's essentially, you know, or during the sales process, we'll understand your tech stack. What's your POS? What's your reservation system? What's your online ordering platform? Do we integrate with all of them? And then we spend, uh, you know, the first week or so integrating with those systems and pulling in all the data. And then we spend, you know, the next couple of weeks basically saying like, what are your marketing goals? Are you trying to re-engage lapsed guests without discounting? We got a campaign for that. Are you trying to find a way to tell your story and communicate your brand to new guests? We have a campaign for that. Are you trying to reward VIP guests? We have a campaign for that. And so it's really understanding what are your marketing goals as a restaurant operator? What is the thing that you care about uh, that you're not doing today? And then how do we help you build a campaign that is tailored to your brand, your business, and your values, and very concretely, program that email automation so that it's live within your first month of signing up for us. Got it. Um, so you're helping with the drip campaign, which what is a drip campaign for people who might it's, not be a, Yeah, it's a good question. It's, it's just a series of emails over a set length of time. So somebody comes into your system, they maybe sign up for, um, maybe you're, you're giving away a free sandwich in exchange for an email, you know, that you get that email, they're in your system, that triggers a series of, you know, yep. they're in your system now, they know that, through that email because they ordered a specific type of sandwich, you know that they like that specific type of sandwich and you can customize. Now that's a segment. Like I know you like meat. I would even say it's more basic than that. Honestly, like I said, the gap between personalized engagement and spray and pray marketing is still pretty large. Most restaurants uh, aren't doing it and that's true of 
some incredibly large brands who email me every three days offering a new coupon or a new discount. But the like the most basic drip campaigns that we have are for new guests and lapsed guests. So someone new orders, it's their first time ever with your brand. Here are five emails that are programmed to send to them over 30 days. Can you get into the details of like what those emails might yeah, look like? Email one, thanks so much. Here's who we are. Email two, here's our story and our values. These are all three to four sentences long. Email three, highlighting a menu item. Email four, why ordering direct from us is better for our business and better for you as a consumer. Mm-hmm. Email five, here's another menu item that consumers love. Done. Got it. And that, that is was programmed. For new. That's for new. And that's programmed every single day for any new guest. So whether you have 10 new guests today and 100 new guests tomorrow, they will all go through that drip sequence. Now, I know there's science involved in yeah. this. Right. As far as like mentally and like, what are you doing with that drip campaign? The goal is to get to, uh, uh, three orders as close to three orders on average within the first 60 days, because the probability of when a guest places their third order, the probability that they never order from you again goes down. So the probability that they don't come back goes, it goes way down. Yeah. Right? But I, th- I think the number is like 70% more likely to come back to yeah. you. Or something so like, like to that. give you, exce- to give you, uh, to really dive into the numbers, most restaurants, only 10 to 15% of guests come back in their first 60 days after their first order. So if 10 guests place a, place an order today for the first time, only one, only one to two will come back within the next two months. So what is the psychology that's happening in this trip? campaign that makes them come back proactive persistent brand-based communication when someone orders directly from you or visits you and gives you an email address they're saying yes to you in the digital realm they actually feel good about they feel good enough about your brand and the experience to say yes to you to give you their email address and so instead of abusing that and appealing to their wallet with never-ending discounts that are totally untargeted and impersonalized we say focus on building a relationship with the guest and give them a series of emails over an extended period of time that, again, communicate who you are, what you do, and why you do it. Okay. And so you build that relationship, and the probability that they come back goes up. Because they're like, I remember this place. Yeah. And I, and, and I want to be like them. I want to identify with what they stand for. So I'll order from them again, or I'll go in and I'll visit from and I'll visit from them again. Got it. So, um, so that was for a new customer. Yeah. What about Laps? It's actually not that different. Um, it's... It's for Laps customers. It's let me reintroduce you to the brand. You may have forgotten about us. You may have forgotten what we stand for. It's been sixty or ninety days since we last saw you, um, and we miss you. But instead of we miss you, here's a discount. It's we miss you, and let me tell you what's great about what we do. And let me tell you about what's great about why we do it. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you, you know, let me give you a story from our chef yeah. which talks about what it means to have you as a customer and to serve yeah. you as a guest. And this is when your so. when your when your vision, your mission, your values are front and center. These are the things that you do that no one else does that makes you unique. That's right. Right. That's and right. that's why it's so important to take the time <clears throat> to get the clarity on what those things are. That's right. And then and like the numbers back that up as well too. You know, most restaurants when they send, when they send, a, we all we've all seen these emails. It's been thirty days. I miss you. Here's a discount. Yeah. The typical conversion rate on that email is only two percent, meaning you email a hundred people, only two of them actually ever use the coupon. Right. When you turn it into this story based drip campaign, the conversion rates can go up to ten percent. Now, with, so, with these drip campaigns, are you if somebody clicks a link, does that send them down a new path? Like, are is there are 
are there splits based off of the behavior people are taking? You could do that. So we have some we have some restaurant partners that do that where they will have for the new guest sequence, for example, they'll have a, a journey for someone who's placed their first order. When that customer places a second order, they'll actually trigger a new journey. And then when they place a, the most advanced we've seen is when someone places a third order that triggers another new journey. And so it's it's this but each trigger, each new journey is a new segmentation. Yeah. You're learning something about that guest, yeah. a behavior about that guest that you can use to specify to specify yep. the communication. Yep. And it also works on the on the lap side too with the discount, right? Let's say you have a lapse drip campaign without a discount that goes out on day sixty. And let's say you have three emails over twenty one days. Yeah. If the customer does not order after that lapsed drip campaign, those three emails between day 60 and day 80, you can have a coupon go out at day 90 as a last-ditch attempt. So instead of making the discount the first thing the guest sees when they lapse, you try to win them back based on your brand and your principles. And if for whatever reason that doesn't work, you say, it's fine. Maybe you really just care about the discount. Here it is. As a last-ditch attempt to try to win you back, Here's the discount. And that way, at least you're winning the customer back and you're not leaving money on the table in the process. Got it. So we're unpackaging email marketing really well right now, which is, you know, there's some lessons being pulled from this, I'm sure, from our listeners. Um, but you're not just an email marketing platform. You're more than that. Uh, you're also getting the information. Where yeah. exactly are you getting this information? So we, I mean, we pull it directly from, from a POS system typically. Um, so if there's somebody who makes an order, um, you're going to have credit card information. Yeah. You're going to have what else? Yeah. We have, I mean, everything that's on the check. So credit card information there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes the name. But you're um, not getting contact information. We don't get contact information. But so here, I'll give you an, I'll give you an example of why this data is still relevant outside of email marketing. I was talking to the head of analytics at a 50 location chain a couple of weeks ago. And we were talking about like all this stuff, what we do and, and how it works. And he's like, you know, the, the most basic question that we still can't answer is what is our order frequency? And I'm like, you're, you're 50 locations. You're the head of analytics. What do you mean? What is our order frequency? He's like, don't know. Can't tell you. What's our customer life? So are you saying order frequency per customer? Yes. Or, okay. How frequently does a customer order from us? Wow. Um, what's our customer lifetime? That can, you can get that with a credit card because you can see that that you can't transactions. No. Well, so the thing is, and I think we're in a bit of a fortunate position here. You cannot, you cannot do that without pulling all the data, sifting through the data yourselves in spreadsheets, and then combining it. And then you have to think about what is my order frequency for an in-store customer versus what is my order frequency for a delivery customer. Mm. Because the way you talk to those two customers is incredibly different. How those people behave is How they behave is totally different. My whole philosophy on the future uh, is that, you know, we we used to sample restaurants by looking up Google Maps, going on Resi, uh, or open table and booking it and physically going in and having the experience. Yeah. But with the growth of delivery, food is more accessible now than it's ever been before. You don't need to leave your house. You can sit on your couch, especially in New York. City. Right. And so I, I think increasingly what people will do is they will sample restaurants. This is just a hypothesis, but they will sample restaurants from their couch. They will look they will open DoorDash, Uber Eats, and they'll look through the marketplace and they're like, I'll try this spot. 
I'll try this spot. I'll try this spot. And then what they'll do is the places they really like, they're like, maybe I'll go there and visit there. Yeah. But that is totally different from someone who's like, I'm just going to get in my car and go and try it. There's a different threshold of willingness. There's a different willingness to pay. There's a difference in terms of the experience. And so understanding lifetime value, understanding order frequency, all of those are pieces of data that go into informing how are you going to talk to this customer. Mm-hmm. And we saw this today. We ran an analysis today for one of our 10 location brands. They were like, I want to know order frequency for in-store customers, and I want to know order frequency for delivery customers. And the order frequency for delivery customers is almost 2x. Wow in a 90-day period, what it is for an in-store customer. And yeah. that makes a ton of sense because their average check in-store is $50. Yeah. And their average check on delivery is $20. You know, I, I so. have this, like, this theory kind of working in the back of my mind that I think restaurant physical spaces are going to be, over time, m- much more focused on just creating experiences yeah. because what's going to end up happening is those experiences are going to be associated with the food and there's going to be a little bit of a residue when you would like order from home, you know, you're going to, it's going to trigger memories of experiences yeah. you've had at that restaurant. Yeah. So like in the, in, I think the in house experience is going to be more important than ever right. because those experiences you create are going to create loyalty, whether, so somebody might want to order out, they might not go straight to uh, your restaurant, but they're going to order from you because of the experiences you've, they had when they were physically right. at your restaurant. Right. So I think there's just going to be more, I don't know if it's more activity based things like because more like, experiential though. I mean, yeah, general, like, yeah. But like yeah. the thing is you were limited before it was like, okay, you, you are limited by how many seats you have in your restaurant. Now there's like, like literally infinite amount of seats right. that are potentially yours because right. people are ordering from home. So what do you do with that space in your restaurant? You don't want, you I mean you can make way more money in delivery and, t- and takeout than you could with in-house experience. So what do you do with that physical space to create really right. amazing? So you you that translates to more pickup and delivery. Right. Um, maybe I'm I don't know this for this well, is I, just me like spitballing. I, I think don't know I think what it translates into is anybody listening to me don't take ex- no. This I mean is like, it's, it's, I don't want you to change your whole business model no, based off of that. Well, statement. here's what here's what I think it translates into, and we saw this. With, I mean, the the beautiful thing about what the restaurant industry is going through now is that there's a playbook for it. We've already seen it happen with retail, with Amazon and the rest of retail. And the thing, the way things have unfolded is if you look at the well, brands in retail anchor themselves on one on on a, on a spectrum between experience and convenience, and every brand has either gone hard into convenience or hard into experience. And now you can do both. If you're in the middle, JCPenney tried to be in the middle. Macy's, these big Sears, these big department stores tried to be in the middle. They tried to be all things to all people. Mm -hmm. And they got totally crushed in the process. And I think the same thing is going to happen with restaurants. You are either going to have to anchor or maybe you can do both, but you need to set very clear limits and very clear boundaries between what is experiential, the in-store experiential, interactive, you know, like again, going back to my mother-in-law, this story of like being your amma, being your mother, and treating you like you are part of the family in-store, but your delivery experience needs to focus on convenience. Yeah. Because that's what people care about. Yeah. And And so understanding those two buckets of customers and then understanding how you can migrate a high frequency convenience customer into an experiential customer 
is super valuable also. So but. what are some of the key elements to do that? I feel like, and yeah. this is kind of off subject, but I think it's important. Uh, I, one thing comes to my mind that I think is you're going to see a lot more, but I, I don't want to say it until I hear what you have to say. Maybe I'm not being too clear. Yeah, I was, was going to say. I was so gonna, go ahead, um, go ahead the idea of either being more. high experience or yeah. high throughput, high convenience, right? Yeah. Um, to do both of those things, you said yeah. there needs to be a fine line. Yeah. But what does the what does the, the what does that restaurant look like? Like physically look like? That's a good question. I think the best the best real world example I've seen so far is PF Chang's and PF Chang's to go. Mm-hmm. They literally have a separate brand called PF Chang's to go. That's and, exactly what I was thinking. And it's, and it's the reason why you need to split those two things again is the customer. It, it might not even be that the customer is different. I could be eating inside PF Chang's and I could order PF Chang's to go. What's different is the experience and the use case of why I am ordering in those two yeah. separate modes. And so that's, that's what I mean where it's like PF Chang's to go is much more anchored on convenience, efficiency, delight. Yeah, It's not about taking the same menu and the same food and just putting it in a to-go container and shipping it out. They the way they treat those experiences is different because they are different. Yeah, yeah. Right. The only um, thing that's the same, and this is one way that I can explain it that yeah. comes to mind. The only thing that's the same is the brand, but everything else is different. Right. So meaning you literally have a different line. Right. You have a restaurant where people go and they they're coming to you to, to have the in store experience, and that is one line. That is one restaurant. By line, I mean one food line. One right. One one output. One throughput. Right. The, all the all the orders that come in from our physical location go through this process. Right. Then you have a completely different location, right? A different line right. in a commissary kitchen, someplace else, yep. where the entire business is different. Yeah, everything is yeah. different, and you, like you said, it's a totally different experience. Yeah, and it's just about you know, like, and it's it's about throughput. How right. and when you have all those things happening from one kitchen, things start to bump up against each other, right. and it doesn't work. And the somebody somewhere right. suffers because right. of it. Right. And we've seen this too, you know, like where you have primarily uh, experiential on-premise restaurant businesses that have started to do delivery and now their delivery business is going crazy in a good way and people are in store and they're like, they're ignoring me. They're not making my food because they're pounding out so many delivery orders. Yeah. And that's a, that's a good <clears throat> problem to have because you have a lot of business, but it could also lead to a like yeah. It leads to a bad customer experience. And to tie so. this back into the overarching conversation yeah. um, with a tool like Bicky, you can look at all of those touch points and create and identify what type of consumers on the other end of the transaction right. to tailor fit the, the, the message right to that person. Right. So we just came full circle. Like I'll give you an, like the drip campaigns, <laughs> the drip yeah. campaigns for a new delivery guest. I, you know, I, so I'll give you the most high powered example. We have, uh, some of our customers have been saying like we've been doing this lapse strip flow when a customer's lapsed at 60 days how can we improve this and we started looking at order frequency of people before they lapse and what is the order frequency for a loyal guest what is the order frequency for a one-off guest i mean it's only once what is the order frequency in between and what we started to do is recommend people and say if you have a vip customer who lapses actually st- Instead of waiting 60 days, wait 34 days because they lapse at day 35. So start at day 34. 
So instead of treating even, and, and I mean, these are kind of like finer hyper segmentations. And so you're kind of squeezing out efficiencies and it's not big buckets of customers. Yeah. But the point is, is that in, every guest and their behavior is different. And when you have the data, you have the knowledge to just understand a basic question of like, my mother-in-law knew who her guests were because she was in the front of house every day. And she could see people and know their names and their faces and what they eat, what they drink. And at the end of the day, if you're a single unit owner operator and you're in the store every single day, that's great. But if you are trying to scale beyond that or grow beyond that, or let's say you want to go on vacation and, you, and you, you're not going to be in the store for a week, you need something, you need a, a safety net behind you that's still capturing that data and still doing the work for you yeah. and enhancing your approach to hospitality. Yeah. And that's what the data fundamentally unlocks. So I started so. talking, asking so. about all the, the elements of Bicky. Yeah. And we talked about um, the fact that you're collecting the data. You talked about you getting it through the POS. We talked about the email marketing element of Bicky. Uh, where else is the data coming in? I don't know if we fully unpackaged that. I'm going to try to uh, unpackage Bicky as much yeah, as possible. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Cause we still have a lot of conversation left that right. we haven't even gotten to. Right. <laughs> so we got to make sure we get to that. So just kind of like where's so, online ordering. So, you yeah. know, we integrate, we have over 30 integrations. Um, so point of sales one online ordering like Ola or bento box or Bbot. Uh, Big news about Bebot. I know, I know, I know. I, I texted Steve yesterday because Steve and I are, are, Steve was the founder of Bebot. Steve and I are friends and I'm genuinely, I'm very happy for him. You yeah. Know, it's, it's, he's, I've, I have never met uh, an entrepreneur that hustles harder than yeah. him. And for the, and great, those yeah. of you um, who haven't heard the news, Bebot just was acquired by DoorDash. By DoorDash, yeah. Um, and Bebot started as a, not to make this whole conversation, I get down tangent so easily. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, Bebot is, it started as a, as a, um, Robotics company, right, for the restaurant industry, right. and delivering which, drinks in clubs. Yeah, basically. which they <laughs> basically pivoted to an online ordering solution. Right, right. Uh, but they're doing some really interesting things yeah. as far as uh, user experience goes. That I've heard nothing but good things about. So, yeah. best of luck to them. Yeah, uh, hopefully and they're a great partner for us too. You hopefully, know. DoorDash doesn't steal all that data that they've been getting. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway, um, so okay. Uh, so online, online ordering, ordering reservations is another piece. So you and know, this like is a, where you're getting email, phone number, things like that. Yeah, 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 so. and the history of a visit. Um, yeah, that's that's most of it. And then you know, loyalty platforms and stuff like that. So integration with loyalty pack platforms. Are there certain platforms that Bicky integrates best with? Uh, on the POS side, Toast and Square. Yep, those are the best ones. Um, uh, on the online ordering side, I you know, at the end of the day, a lot of the orders themselves push to Toast and Square. Yeah. Right. Some of their either have direct integrations with the POSs or they integrate with something like Chowley or Checkmate. So all the orders end up in the POS anyway. So POS is kind of yeah. like the it's the POS is the operational source of truth. Yeah. And we try to become the customer record, customer data source. of truth. We got to talk off air because I, I need I feel like you must know so many people who are just hard nerds when it comes to this sort of thing. <laughs> and I'm looking for some hard nerds to have in my corner to go to to ask questions. Yeah. Because uh, I would love to start having dialogue within Restaurant Stoppable Network, the the membership platform, yeah. where we have space for conversations just like this. And I have somebody who is way more intelligent than I am about certain verticals that I can just go to to be like, you talk to us about yeah. this. So if you know people like that, yeah, happy means, to, yeah. Man. of course. Yeah. Um, okay, so anything else about Bicky that we haven't unpackaged? Now's the time to get it out. Uh, no, I think, you know, very simply, again, if you're... It's. I think we. I always like to think of us as the best way to help restaurants understand, engage, and retain their guests. Right. I think those three things are critical to any restaurant's success. Yeah. 
And I, I don't think there's no, there's no denying that the restaurant business is becoming increasingly digital, whether that's through a cloud POS or pay at table QR yeah. codes or online ordering. And there's a way to collect that data and make that data meaningful, actionable, and impactful for a restaurant. Yeah. And I think Bicky is the best way to help restaurants and do I, that. I do want to point out to my listeners that Bicky is a tool that's been referred to me organically. Um, I think it was first came across my radar when Corey Manicone came on the show and had great things to say about you. And then I just heard a bunch of other people. I, I've had Mexico on the show. When I went to yeah. your website, I, I saw, you know, oh, his name is escaping me. I'm so sorry. Help me Thomas. Yeah, Thomas, yeah, thank yeah, you. Yeah. I saw Thomas's face right there. And I was like, yeah. I know this face. Yeah. Um, so I want to let my listeners know that uh, my, my focus with this show is to get restaurant tours on the show and in the companies and so, tools and services they're recommending. And even when those companies and tools are, are recommended and they reach out to me to be a guest on the show, I'm transparent. I charge them upwards of $2,000 for a feature to be on the show. I did not do that with you because I wanted to talk to you because I, I <laughs> thank knew you. you. I didn't even a, know that. So yeah. Thank cause, you. cause I, I was like, no, I really want to talk to this guy cause I think there's going to be so many lessons and I'm happy that I just, you know, I'm here to talk to you and not, you know, I appreciate it. Yeah. And you're here so, in our office too. Exactly. You're, you're, you're you know? in New York. So yeah, I, you, I think the listeners could probably hear the, the sirens and the horns oh, in the yeah, background. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what happens <laughs> when you record in New York city. Uh, but you know, you're here because you know your stuff and a lot of people are, are saying cool things about you. I appreciate that. So, yeah. um, I'm happy I made the choice. To do yeah. That. Likewise. Um, so one more quick break to thank our sponsors and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about the future and um yeah i don't know exactly what's going to come out but uh, I'm it's great for this it. is the part where we get to have opinions that uh we don't have to hold ourselves accountable to so yeah and i don't have all the answers but it'll be cool to kick the can around we'll be right back yeah. today's episode is brought to you by talk to the manager look nowadays people rather send you a text message than speak to you directly face to face that's just the way people choose to communicate and there's not much we can do about it or is there talk to the manager allows guests to share feedback or ask questions in a way that makes them feel comfortable and is also convenient to you. Don't worry about personal information being shared. Customers won't see your personal phone number, just the number that talk to the manager provides. You can even delegate customer feedback and divide the workload amongst your managers. Multiple managers can receive these texts. When one manager replies to a customer, the other staff will see their responses too. What I personally love most about Talk to the Manager is that you can fix issues immediately in private before complaints go public online. Many times when people do write a negative review, it's because they just want to be heard and talk to the manager gives them that outlet to be heard before they bring it publicly and drag your name through the mud. Plus with talk to the manager, get issues brought to your attention, whether it's an issue with your restaurant service product or facility, your guests will let you know whether you want to hear it or not, but this will help you improve using talk to the manager is so intuitive that no technology is required. If you can send a text message, you can use talk to the manager. Show guests you care enough to listen with Talk to the Manager. Head to talktothemanager.com slash unstoppable to sign up for your 60-day trial. That's www.talktothemanager.com slash unstoppable. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And effective labor management is more important than ever to ensure profitability and restaurant success, especially with this labor shortage. You need to rely and trust technology more than ever before. And dialing in your labor management is one of the most positive, dramatic impacts you can make 
on your business's bottom line. And when it comes to labor management, Seven Shifts is one of the most, if not the most, organically recommended labor management platforms on the show. Trusted by over 500,000 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the complete toolkit you need to easily manage your team's schedules, timesheets, communication, tasks, tips, and more all from one place. Best of all, Seven Shifts integrates with the POS and payroll system you're already using, like Toast, to make smart operating decisions and turn labor management into a competitive advantage for your business. Restaurant Unstoppable members get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven S H I F T S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. We're back and we're now going to take the conversation to a very 30,000 foot big picture overarching just things I'm curious about. And I would really love to hear your perspective. So earlier I was asking you about your mother-in-law and you, and you're, I asked you, do you think it's a good thing that your, your mother-in-law went through this transition of being uh, forward facing to the consumer, to the guest, to now fo- looking more at tablets and data. Yeah. Um, is that a good thing? You said, yeah, I, I do think it's a good thing. Um, I, I wonder about that. I think it's a good thing. I'm not going to argue that that will, it's a good thing that will help you scale your business and make you more profitable. Yep. But is it a good thing collectively that society is headed in this direction? And I'm going back to the idea of anthropology yeah. and learning the study of us, yeah. the study of what makes us happy. And we're not going to find happiness in data. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? We're not, but we will find happiness in this. Yeah. I, I get my ass on a fucking train and I come to New York city to sit across the table from you yeah. because I know it's going to be better, you know? And, and I think we forget that. And we're yeah. all looking yeah. about throughput and volume in reaching more people, but the quality of our relationships isn't what it used to be. Right. Do you agree or disagree with that, that statement? We might know more about people than we ever knew before, but you know what I'm saying? Is it's it? I yeah. What I will say is, in the last two years, with you know we're coming on like the I think it was March 13th. Tom Hanks got COVID and the NBA canceled, postponed its season. So we're coming up. Where it's March 2nd today. Wow. So we're coming up on uh, year three of COVID in our broader lives the last two years have taught me that what matters is the depth of connection and the depth of relationships but also how few of those relationships actually matter in the long-term grand scheme of things wait say that one more time what matters is it doesn't matter like the quantity of relationships it's the quality of the relationships yeah. and that as humans, we could probably only sustain a handful of those relationships Dunbar's at, number, at, at, any give, yeah, at any given time. Yeah. I would even say it's, I mean, for uh, it, because if you factor in how glued all of us are to our screens, one thing you, you said is like, is it a good thing that we're all looking at screens now and we have more information about people, more data on people? I don't look at it as a good or a bad thing. I just look at it as like the thing that's happening. Like it's not, we're not going to reverse that. I mm-hmm. think it's, it's hard to, and this ties into what we were talking about the restaurant industry where thinking about consumers as either prioritizing convenience and being in their own world and ordering food on their terms or having an experience 
where the bar is high enough that someone is willing to break out of that their own bubble and their own screen and their own handful of relationships that they're cultivating and investing in and willing to just come out of that for a brief moment in time and spend it in your establishment on an experience that you've cultivated as a restaurant operator. Yeah. Um, so I, so I would, you know, like I don't look at it as like good or bad that we're becoming, that we have more, it's great that we have more data and we have more information on people because it helps you identify who has the potential to do that. And then how do you communicate with them and how do you talk to them and what do they like? What did they dislike? Um, as always, it's like a fine line and you need to really understand how to use that data appropriately and leverage it appropriately and, and leverage it effectively. Um, I, I mean, it's a double-edged sword, but I, yeah. I think ultimately it's a, it's a, it's a good thing. And if the last two years have taught me anything, it's like, I used to be the kind of person where I would go to every networking event. I would talk to as many people as possible. I would put myself out there as much as possible. And I've just tried to become a lot more intentional, intentional about what I do, why I do and who I do it with. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that to me is like been the leading lesson of the last two years in particular. I, I so. think it's a matter of balance. Yeah. I think it's, I think once we learn, uh, I think we can be so consumed with feeding the funnel and, uh, having as many touch points as possible, especially on social media. We put so much time and focus into, and I mentioned it earlier. Like I don't, I, I deleted social media from my phones. Yeah. I, the only time I, I get social media back on my phone is unless I need to reach out to somebody I know right. that I can get a hold of them through Instagram. I'll, right. I'll download the app. Right. But I mean, I have G here with me right now, uh, doing social media. I yeah. know that that world is not for me. It's not even, I mean, like I put a I put a time limit on my phone yesterday on, for Twitter. Twitter is my social media platform of choice. Yeah. I put a thirty minute daily time limit on it. Yeah, because I what I noticed in the last two weeks increasingly is I would spend time scrolling Twitter when I'm at home, when my with the thought that Twitter is a great platform to learn. So I follow other entrepreneurs, other founders, other investors, other product people, other restaurant people, and I'm and I, and I'm so engaged in absorbing that knowledge and understanding that knowledge. But then I would finish scrolling Twitter. I'd be like, the fuck did I just spend an hour doing? You know, I spent, I took an Uber back from the office to my apartment. It was a 45 minute ride. I spent the whole 45 minutes on Twitter when I have books that I bought that I'm excited to read in my backpack that I did not crack open. And I got there and I, and I thought about the cost of that 45 minutes and the cost of that learning. And I said to myself, I need to put a time limit on this thing because the amount of learning that I get, not just in the instant dopamine hit, but the amount of learning that I retain that stays with me and that I can use, that payoff is not there. Mm-hmm. And when I'm at home scrolling Twitter, that is 10, 15 minutes that I could spend playing Legos with yeah. my three-year-old. I just don't think we and realize so, how much time we lose to these devices and right. these apps and things. And But that's where I'm coming back to. It's like it's about being more intentional, right? So like the, now I know I have 30 minutes on Twitter. Yeah. And I know that I need to be super intentional with these 30 minutes so that I get out of the platform what I want to. Because I need to have the discipline to just log off it. Yeah. Um, I think it's a matter of finding that balance and people, I mean, we, and the other big part, I mean, this is more on the social media side of things, but like, I just, there's so much pressure on business owners say to to do all these things, to be all these places. You need to do these things to be successful. If you don't do these things, you're going to fail. A lot of those things are digitally faced things that you have to do. And I think it's important just to remind people that like, yeah, these things are Instagrammable. Yeah. (laughs) These things are important. You know, you can't deny the impact social media has on your business. The the impact of leveraging tools like Bicky automation has on your business. They will make you more profitable. They will help your business, but you have, have to remember about you have to remember what do I need 
as a human, right. as an organic piece of matter. Right. What do I need? Right. And what we need is relationships, meaningful relationships, right. across-the-table relationships, face-to-face relationships. I think it's just important that people don't lose sight of that. And I think we, it is a good thing. I agree with you in the sense that there's more and more we can do to improve our businesses, but look at those things as opportunities for other people who are good at those things. So you can do what you're good at. And I mean, perfect example, G on the other side of the camera right now, he's good at this, you know, (laughs) I'm not, you know, I'm good at at engaging people face to face in conversation. So I want to focus on that. I want to throw my fucking phone across the room because I can't stand that shit. (laughs) Uh, But use that as an opportunity for somebody else. You don't have to do it all. Right. Um, And I think we can move on now. But I want to get your your take on that. Yeah. The other thing I was really interested uh, about, I'm a huge fan of uh, Yuval Noah Harari, the author of Sapiens, um, Homo Duo, I think is the other, his newest book where it's like a futurist kind of book. Yeah. And he studies the study of us. If you guys have not read sapiens the story of of humankind it's have you i have not yet it's great it's, it's been recommended to me endlessly and that's what i'm saying i was like i have books that i'm excited to read and i haven't cracked open yeah if you're if you're interested in learning about the history of yeah. us humans and yeah. how we are and why we are the way we are that's a great book but he was interviewed not too long ago about uh, what's going on with all this data right and he said there, there's three rules that he thinks should apply to the idea of data uh when you're or i think What's the, the limits, the misuse of data? How do we limit the misuse of data? There's three rules. The first rule is if you get any data or my data, you should you you should be I'm horrible at reading things. This is why if you get my data, the data should be used to help me not manipulate me. That's the rule number one. Whenever you increase surveillance of an individual, you simultaneously increase the surveillance of the company and the governments collecting that data. That's number two. Number three, never let the data live in one place. That's a recipe for dictatorship. <laughs> it's true, though. Yeah. So I mean, if, you, if you look what's yeah. happening in these third-party deliveries, yeah. um, there's, there's only going to be one or two companies that come to the top. Right. You know, It's right. going to be DoorDash. It's going to be Uber. It's, or it's going to be what? Grubhub? I w- yeah, I think the, at the rate things are going, it's it's looking like, uh, I mean, DoorDash and Uber Eats currently have the highest market share, yeah. and it doesn't look like nothing's changing that in the near term. So um, rule number three, never let the data live in one place. That's a recipe for dictatorship. Are they following that rule? Uh, what does that mean, live in one place? I think if only one entity has access to the data so the all information. That it, well, I mean, I think that's why it's, it's necessary for, that's why it's necessary for a healthy ecosystem between third parties and restaurants and mm-hmm. consumers and, and, and delivery people. So how do would you um, say that we, we need to move more in that direction of, of fragmenting, decentralizing the data? I, th- I think Let me, let me frame questions. it this way. Let me frame. You're like me, this motherfucker didn't give me these questions. No, 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 no. This is good. No, it's good. It's a good question. Um, the thing that I'm, the thing that I'm getting increasingly comfortable with is this idea that as individuals, we do not have a right to for things to go our way by that what i mean is third-party delivery platforms 
have made, have built their value, their shareholder value and their services. Yes. At the expense of restaurants on the flip side, the way that they got that power and that control is because they built a service that consumers love. Yeah. And that consumers use regularly. And when I started the business, I thought that there was a fundamental right for the restaurants to have that data and to own that data. Where my position has shifted is nobody in life, maybe aside from your parents or in your siblings, owe you anything. And if you want to fight to rebalance that equation, you need to build the services and the tools and the business that will, that will bring that balance back to the world. And I think that's what we are trying to do at Bicky. It's, it's not about canceling third party. It's about restoring balance and restoring some semblance of parity between the restaurant which feels like it's at the mercy of this big platform and, and that big platform. At the end of the day, the restaurant business is about serving consumers, serving guests. And those guests have, it's not about right or wrong. It's about what are they doing? And they've moved to these third-party apps. And it's incumbent upon restaurant operators and the technologists that serve restaurant operators to figure out what to do now that we are in that position. Got so um, so as a I don't know if that answers your question, but I like from my perspective, it's balance. It's, uh, you yeah, know, and, and I don't yeah. I don't know how what kind of evolution, what kind of progress we've made from when these third parties first emerged to have they broken down some of their walls? Are they being better about sharing the data? Is it? I think they 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 are uh, getting better. I mean, they're still like. Let's be clear it's 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 a long way from where it should be. To really having the restaurants like it's it's you know I was, I was slacking with the CEO of another big of a much bigger firm than I was restaurant tech company yesterday, and he's like, we should just call this dark revenue revenue that you know exists but you have no idea like who how it's getting to you who's contributing to it and that's true it is dark revenue. When you say this um, is dark revenue, what do you mean? Third uh, rev- orders from third party delivery Got platforms. It. Yeah, yeah, right. It is dark revenue, and 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 I think look like like I said, like I think it's in in the best interest of the third parties to invest in a healthier ecosystem. Otherwise you have city councils that are going to be passing anti third party bills that are going to be mandating data sharing. Again, if there is, if the third parties want a healthy restaurant ecosystem, they should invest in some of these tools that give restaurants access to the data. That doesn't necessarily mean the PII personal customer info. I, I get why that boundary needs to exist because a consumer is giving their data to DoorDash, Grubhub, Uber Eats, and not to the restaurant directly. But there needs to be some semblance of balance where, the, where DoorDash or, or these third parties say, like, here's how much we're contributing to you. Here's how effective it is. Do you want to invest more with us? Here's what you can do if you choose to allocate more time, attention, spending into this channel. Yeah. Um, I still and, that, want to, and that balance. We still got to talk about the great unbundling. Sure. So I want to make sure we leave time for that. And, and um, this this one, I want to repeat the first rule. Um, I'll repeat the second rule tool. So we talked about never uh, let all the data live in one place. We kind of you answered that pretty well. Uh, whenever you increase the surveillance of an individual, you simultaneously increase the, the surveillance of the companies or governments collecting that data. I don't know if that's happening. Right now, no. I, I think the I think both questions, questions one and two, though, come down to like what is our as a, as a data company? Yeah, what we have a responsibility. To, yes, to 
to and, and that leads to the next question, yeah. which I want to get your take because technically, Bicky is a data. You're, yeah. you're, we're, we're I mean, we're a data, data. company. Yeah. That's, that's what we do. Yeah. So if you get my data, the data should be used to help me, not manipulate me. Right. What are your thoughts on that statement? Do you, would you say what's happening? What you do is, is do you flirt with the the line of manipulation? If this is all automated and happening, or like where do you draw that line? And I'm not saying like I literally do yeah. not know the answer to this question. No, I mean I don't. I look, we're not. At the end of the day, we are not. We don't. <laughs> manipulation is a very strong word, and yeah. I, I don't think what we do is manipulating people. What we try to do persuasion, maybe. Sure, but that's all of marketing. Yeah, that's. I mean, there's billboards sitting outside, and there was a billboard of Dua Lipa. Uh, across the street for the for three months. No, she's not there anymore. But <laughs> she was there for three months. And one of my somebody on my team is going to a Dua Lipa concert yeah. today. Was he manipulated to going to the Dua Lipa concert? No, he was like, I saw the billboard. She's doing a show in New York. Great, I'm gonna go check her out. Yeah. Um, marketing is about persuasion. What we are trying to persuade guests to to do is build relationships. We're get we're affording restaurants the the opportunity to build relationships with their guests. Yeah, and if a and if a guest doesn't want wants to opt out of that, they can, they can opt out of the emails. We don't ping them again. They cannot visit the restaurant anymore. That's fine. We'll and we'll say this is a lost customer. <laughs> they can, you know, we have SMS built into the product, and you know, two hours after your order, you get a text and say, "How is your meal? Thumbs up, thumbs down." You can reply, and we say very clear. You can reply, stop. You reply, stop. We never text you again. Yeah. So I, I, again, I think there's persuasion and people can opt out of it. And I think yeah. that's, again, it's, it's that, it's that give and take that, that needs to exist. You're feeling these, these, these questions. Well, you really are. <laughs> yeah. um, and I'm putting you on, I'm really putting the, no, it's on. okay. These and are, I'm, these are good. <laughs> these are good, uh, important questions that and need I, to be asked. I'm chuckling so, right now so. because the whole reason we are sitting here is because of the great unbundling. Is that it? Right, I always that's, call that's, them packaging. Yeah, 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 unbundling. Yeah, yeah. In yeah. with 13 minutes left in our our block time, we're finally getting into the conversation. <laughs> to, to the initial piece that kicked off our <laughs> yeah. initial conversation. Uh, but like that was yeah. that was what kind of broke down the door and made me want to talk to you. And then when I started researching, I was like, oh, we can. Just, there's so much more we can unpackage yeah. and offer for value. But um, what is the great unbundling? The great unbundling is this idea that. As the restaurant business evolves, having an all-in-one solution as a restaurant operator that handles everything for you is limiting to your business or limiting to your success as a restaurant operator. What that means is you have one system that is your point of sale, labor, scheduling, inventory management, online ordering, email marketing, feedback tool, reservation platform. I think restaurant operators, because the business is so complex, crave simplicity and they crave one platform that can do everything for them. The problem is... Right. The, I, and so... One check. Everything. One, yeah, one bill, not right. 50. And and so the problem is, is that... And this is just true of life. Like if you if you are one person and you focus on too many things, you're gonna do a lot of them poorly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like you suck at your job or you're bad at this. It's just literally like there are only so many hours in the day. There are only so many resources that these companies have that they can invest in to do things at the level that restaurant operators need and deserve. 
And so the great unbundling is this movement in restaurant software specifically that best of breed companies will start to handle critical restaurant operations as the business evolves. And the important thing is not that they're all packaged in one service. The important thing is that they all talk to each other yeah. effectively. So my understanding around like right, right around the time I started this podcast, 2012, 2013, it's crazy. I think it's been almost 10 yeah, years. Yeah, 10 year run. I so know, yeah. right? Um, the conversation I remember vividly is how do we package? How do we bundle? Right. It was the great bundling. Right. Right. Everybody, like you right. said, everybody thought they wanted this. It was a great bundling. How right. do we put all this, this stuff into one place? And I mean, that's kind of what, you, you know, hot schedules right. we evolved into. And you kind of, I think, I don't, I don't know. I want to throw names out there, but Toast is, I think, something, another company that kind of made a run at being the one-stop shop yeah. for all of your solutions. I mean, I'll give you a perfect example, right? Uh, we have, we're talking to, uh, I asked one of our customers this morning, how do you handle promo codes? Because they have a, a point-of-sale system, they have a separate online ordering provider, they have a separate loyalty provider. They're happy with that setup because the three platforms they've picked are the best at those three things. Yeah. POS for in-store guest service, their online ordering platform, Great customer experience, easy checkout, and then loyalty to have a platform where they can help increase frequency and, and do better communication with guests. And I asked them, and I was like, how do you guys handle promo codes? We get this question a lot. Like, what's the source of truth for your promo codes? And even the POS platform, which wants to be a one-stop shop, you can't do single-use promo codes unless it's for their online ordering platform. So the restaurant, in order to make a single-use promo code work, the restaurant needs to compromise on their online ordering experience and opt for a lower-quality online ordering experience, which could lead to higher churn and less business, just to get this feature where they can set, have a single-use promo code, which, by the way, won't work in-store. It only It's the same POS company, that wants to do single-use promo codes will only enable single-use promo codes for their online ordering platform. It won't enable it for in-store transactions. Mm -hmm. So this is what I talk about, where it's like we're starting to get to this unbundling where a restaurant operator can pick the best of everything. We're still not at the point where everything is perfectly integrated together yet. Yeah. And that's kind of the holy grail. So, again, we started with a bunch of, like, you know, the 2010s or whatever you'd call What do you call, like, not the 20s or 30s, but, like, the teens? Yeah, you can call them the teens. Yeah, like, so sure. before the teens, the yeah. the single digits, the tens, whatever the, the naughties they call them. I yeah, think. The, 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 the the knots, the, the knots, no, yeah, the naughties. <laughs> so yeah. during that time, yeah. like technology was booming, yeah. solutions were developing. Yeah. Um, it was all over the place. We wanted to, we wanted to group that together to create one source, so everything worked well together. But then we realized, well, we can't be good at everything, right? And if we really want to be, if we really want a better world, a better restaurant industry, we need to take what you call the best in breed. And yep. make sure those work together instead of having all these companies under one roof. Right. Uh, so the question that I usually ask my guests is what's what's broken with our industry mm-hmm. and what needs to change. Uh, I kind of just, you know, we, we kind of skipped the question, just got straight to it. Right. And this, <laughs> your answer to that is um, un- unbundling and uh, making these companies be able to work together. Or open one up of the that's API. one of, no that's one of the things yeah I would say you know the lack of integration across the stack is a uh, is a tough one I think a lo- so what why why do these companies make it tough to let integrate? me let me frame is it this it, way. are they trying to monopolize like what's going on may I, may uh, 
Maybe. Um, it, this is something that I feel like is unique to restaurant tech where people love to build walled gardens. <laughs> and that's true <laughs> up and down the stack. Yeah. I, I don't understand. You know, like over the last 10 years, I've seen a lot of other companies just open up their APIs and and have this and have this platform approach. Um, it's fear, man. This whole conversation started sure, on fear. Yeah, yeah, maybe. This whole conversation started on fear. Maybe. My mission statement is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. Yeah. And when I say transform the industry, it's like what it needs to change about right. our industry. One of the things I'm trying to transform about the industry is breaking down walls. Right. Uh, we can go much further together than we could ever go alone. Right. And I think, and I think for the longest time, restaurant tours have been putting up walls because they were afraid of the competition down yeah, the street. Yeah. And what I've learned is actually the most successful restaurateurs that break those walls down and collaborate and work with the I think other we've seen that during COVID actually, yeah. which has been great. You know, like my you know, my mother in law's in a WhatsApp group with uh, all the operators on her block. Yeah. And they've been talking about like literally like how are we gonna get more business to our block? Yes. And that's right? the and idea. like that instead of like how am I gonna get more business to Umma, how am I gonna get more business to Sukumvit? How am I gonna get more business to Banchan Chicken? How am I gonna get more business to Cornerstone? These are four different businesses, different use cases, different customer profile. And the question is like during this time, how are we just gonna like the rising tide lifts all boats, right? It's like so how are we gonna get more business to this block so that all of us have a shot at essentially uh, yeah. growing our own business. So this transform this fr- transformation that's happened mm-hmm. within the restaurant industry between restaurants is you can see it happening. Yeah. I've seen it happening in my time doing this podcast. What has to happen for the services that serve our industry to, <laughs> to hop on board to this mentality? Of uh, it's walls? a it's a good question. Uh, I mean, look, I can only speak to it at a high level because I, I'm sure everybody has their own reasons for why they integrate, why they don't integrate, why they build things in a certain way. Um, but, I, you know... I, sorry, keep going. No, I was going to say, uh, I, you know, from a technology standpoint, it comes down to the openness because I think there is... What do you mean by openness? API? Yeah, API, is API? integration. API uh, is, is, is basically a simple way to think about it is... Language? No, it's 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 like a pipe. Okay. Where you can where you can send and request data essentially to make to like uh, a, data like is part of it. Maybe? But, I mean like so we have an API integration with a POS system. The API integration is whenever an order happens, they openly send that order to Bicky so that Bicky can do what it needs to do and structure that data in a way to make it actionable for the restaurant. Got it. Um and so API integration is is another way to is another way to think about it. Um, I think more general, it's just like openness and collaboration to work together. I think we, uh, as, as restaurant technologists, we can sometimes take on the mentality of our customers and our customers. And uh, like we were saying the last few years have been an exception, but our customers have been very competitive, right? It's like people view food as a zero sum game. You're either going to have your, some, they're either going to get your restaurant for lunch or somebody else's restaurant for lunch. Um, and that mentality can translate over to restaurant technologists who think that, again, like either you're going to do the marketing or I'm going to do the marketing. And it's like, no, there's there's enough. The tools are so legacy in this space and have been for so long that and and the model of a restaurant is so cross-functional and integrated and dynamic that that mentality of what makes a restaurant successful and working successfully, what makes a restaurant work successfully needs to carry over to what makes 
a restaurant technology stack yeah. work successfully. So it was right. actually Steve from Bbot that kind of first put this on my radar when I interviewed him. And um, he said, like, when I asked him that question, what needs to transform about the industry? He said, yeah. we need to open up API. Yeah. We need to open up API. And I know that that's what Bbot was set out to do. That was part of their mission yeah. is to open this stuff up, to make it public, to share the information, to, to be designed to work well with others. Uh, when I heard that DoorDash acquired Bebot, I was like, oh man, I hope that doesn't change because like yeah. that, that needs to be a part of the solution. And I have this vision for the future of our industry where we, we get out of the kitchens and we get out of the, the front of house and that this industry becomes, I think we need to take our industry back because our industry has become so much more than serving food. Yep. There's all these things that, that hinge on our business, our industry, and we are not the benefactors of right. those things. Right. And I think what's going to end up happening is as the world evolves, as more and more people become tech savvy, you're going to have servers. You're going to have cooks who develop these skills. And because they're in it every day, they're going to be like, I could create something that is a solution to my problem. Yep. And as more and more people learn that language of, de- of coding and developing, which I think is just going to be like, it's going to, they're going to teach it to elementary school right. kids. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. You know? yeah, yeah. It's going to be a language like, like Spanish that we learned in high school. Yeah you're going to see more and more of the industry coming back to us because right. we're closest to it. And that's going to spring opportunity within our industry. And we're going to, I think we just need to think bigger. Right. And I think that's part of the solution is realizing that like, listen, like we got to stop being acted on. And this is no disrespect to you, yeah, no, but yeah. like we got to, we got to stop, we got to take our industry back and realize yeah, that we're more sure. than serving food. For sure. Yeah. You know, I, know uh, I mean, and you know, hospitality is the business of cultivating experiences. Yeah. That's, that's, it's just how those experiences happen is changing. It can be at home on your couch. It could be in store. It could be through a experiential event or something like that. But yeah, I mean, ultimately, you know, and I say this to all of our customers and they're like, oh, what's your philosophy on technology? How should we buy technology? I'm afraid of introducing technology. Technology is just a tool. Go back to what I said. Technology, my vision of technology is just helping figure out a way to help scale hospitality in the way my mother-in-law does it. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And so everything, when it comes down to using technology for the restaurant industry, it's not about like, oh, you know, like what's the ROI on getting this POS? It's like, how does this POS help you execute better in serving your guests? Because at the end of the day, that's the only thing that matters. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I've really loved this conversation, man. Uh, we are one minute to our agreed upon time. Uh, <laughs> we're really kind of close. Um, but I mean, is there anything we're, that we did not discuss that you were hoping know, we to discuss? covered a lot? <laughs> I mean, usually I ask my guests, like you know, the mission statement is to inspire, empower, and transform. What do you think needs to transform about the industry? I kind of forced you into that conversation. No, no, that's good. Yeah. That's what we're here to talk about. But yeah. is there something else that comes to mind? Like, I, I don't, I want to give you a chance to kind of freestyle here. Uh, we can take it back to the top and it's this it's easier said than done and i forget it myself sometimes but i operators i hope operators don't operate from a position of fear and view the current moment in time as an opportunity to change their business yeah um so yeah there's a, a series of books out there that I'm a fan of um, that kind of is an advocate for this mindset of don't look at technology as a threat, looking at as an opportunity. There's a series of books. It's, it's three books. The first book is Abundance, and uh, the second book is Bold, and the third book is The Future is Faster Than You Think. And uh, it's Peter Diamandis, is who's the author. Uh, it's actually co-authored. I can't think of the other guy's name, though. Um, Stephen Kotler. Uh and the whole idea behind these books is we need to look at technology as a way to free up human bandwidth 
to do so think about how many people's jobs are they're restricted to like sweeping or flipping burgers if we can free up that human potential that human bandwidth to solve problems we're going to create more opportunity for the world and like the world is going to be a much better place it's kind of the the thought it's a great series of books i would love to to get peter on the show but he's kind of a celebrity he's he's like a part he's like spacex status yeah he's elon musk's status so maybe as the show grows maybe we can get him on the show but um why not yeah i mean I, i do think that there's something to be said about just this idea of like yeah like fear don't fear the future embrace the future and recognize that if we do it could open up a much better life for all of us yeah and it's meant to be hard i think none of this there are no shortcuts none of this is easy it's meant to be hard and it's meant to be scary and uh i don't know at some point uh, somebody once told me this is the last thing i'll say somebody once told me that this is when uh my wife was pregnant with our first child and uh one of my mentors told me that having having a child is the ultimate sign to the universe that you're willing to bring something into the world that you will have no control over. <laughs> right. And ever since then, I've been like, I've been I, like, that's, I think about that maybe once a week as I go through like talking with my now five-year-old and three-year-old. And I think about that in the course of what we do in our business Yeah, is there are so many things that I will not have control over and you just got to put one foot in front of the other and try to make the best decisions you can with imperfect information yeah. and, you know, see where it shakes out along the it, way. Man. I love it. Great way so. to the end this thing. And um, we do wrap up every show by calling somebody out. I think that's how I found you. That's how Corey called you out to be a future guest on the show. Who do you respect and admire oh, right now? That, you can give me more than one. Oh, there, I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, first name, when you say that, that comes to mind is, I don't know if you've spoken to him, uh, Alex Beltrani from no. Tattle. Nope. Uh, he's building a company called Tattle um, that serves the restaurant industry. Grew, like me, grew up on Long Island. Uh, he does, unlike me, who, who had to crib the story for my in-laws, his parents have owned a restaurant on Long Island, and he's building a platform to help restaurants basically get actionable guest feedback and turn it into uh, insights to help them improve their operations. Is that Tattle, T-A-T-T-L-E? Or? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, he just raised uh, Series A. So he just raised like close to 6 million bucks. Wow. And yeah, and he's at, you know, thousands of locations now. But persistence, grind, hustle. Uh, Alex from Tattle, um, Steve from Bebot, uh, uh, Crystal from Bento Box, who started, you know, she started her business as as a designer and, and, and helping restaurants build websites, something super basic and has transformed her business into just a democratized online ordering platform for restaurants, helping them control their, their, their digital presence, uh, and their profits. So Crystal from Bento, I mean, there's a lot of the people that, and you know, ultimately too, our, our customers, our restaurant partners, Robert Guarino from five napkin burger, Solomon Choi from 16 handles. Um, uh, these are people that took a bet on Bicky. Uh, we're still early in our life, but they took a bet on us at the earliest stages and uh, just uh, never-ending gratitude for those folks. Is that 16 so, handles? Like, yeah, a, yeah. like my love handles? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Solomon um, has a great story. He's, uh, he moved here in 2008 when Pinkberry and, and, uh, when Pinkberry and uh, Red Mango, I think is the other one, Frozen Yogurt Brands were at their height. And he's like, I'm just going to build a 
frozen yogurt brand go toe to toe with those guys and he's outlasted all of them here in new york beautiful um, um look out yeah. everyone that was just mentioned I, do, I will say steve was a past guest in the show um i would love to reach out to him but he might not be able to talk anymore who knows after <laughs> that acquisition uh crystal with bento box past guest in the show bento box past sponsor yep. current affiliate and they have a great affiliate program i get paid monthly if you become a customer with bento box. So if you guys need a restaurant website solution, yep. organic recommendations, another one yeah. right now. That's who I chose for Amma for our online ordering for my mother-in-law's restaurant. Yeah. We went with bento box when, yeah. when COVID started. Yeah. Great company. If, if you're yeah. looking for, a, if you're opening a restaurant, you need a website, check out bento box, please freaking use my link. Email me, Eric at restaurant So I can make sure I get the lead because I need to start being more aggressive about this affiliate marketing. Um, all right, <laughs> <laughs> that's it, man. Uh, thank you so much, man. There is no questioning. You are unstoppable. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Cheers. There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Special thanks to our guest today, Abhinav Kapoor, CEO of Bicky. Uh, if you guys are interested in Bicky, uh, then we are going to be doing a Q&A on Monday, March 28th at 2 p.m. Eastern. So uh, Abhinav Kapoor will be live in Restaurant Unstoppable Network uh, to answer your questions, to, uh, whether it's about this recording or if you're interested in Bicky, he will be there uh, to answer your questions in um, really knowledgeable dude. So I highly recommend you guys uh, join that conversation. And if you're not in the network and you want to be a part of this conversation, but the 30 bucks a month is a little out of reach for you right now. I get that. Uh, you can get 30 days free Head over to restaurant slash 871. And we'll have a link for you to join the network for a 30 day trial. So you can be a part of this conversation if you really want to be a part of the conversation. Uh, and I also want to say special thanks to G from square one where he does media, uh, videography photography uh, we collaborated uh, while I was out in New York City he helped me out and it's really a privilege that I get to take these young bucks these people who are just getting started in their businesses and collaborate with them and put them in front of you my audience of their target market uh, restaurant owners and operators uh, and I mean just it kind of feels good to know that I can help these people promote their businesses so if you are in the market for a videographer or photographer and you're in New York City hit up G um, other things we got going on in Restaurant Unstoppable Network. I told you about the Q&A with Abhinav Kapoor. Again, that's Monday, March 28th at 2 p.m. Uh, but before then, we have uh, some workshops and next week. We have a standing habits club. So that's going to be Monday at 1 p.m. If you guys want to work on developing habits, and I think habits are the backbone to success in life personally. If you want to improve your habits, then come join the Habit Club. We meet the second Monday of every month. Uh, we also have a workshop on new hiring and training best practices. So we had a new member in the network. Uh, whenever I have a new member in the network, I do an orientation. It's a 30 minute one-on-one with me where I learn about that person and how I can best serve them. And I ask, what content do you want me to make? And uh, this newest member asked me to do a deep dive into new hire training best practices. So we're going to have Danielle from Yelly and Josh from Mies come talk to us about best practices when it comes to training. And then we also might be having Restaurant 365 in the network to talk about all the new product features, rollouts, and just if you're interested in Restaurant 365, uh, I highly recommend you join us next week. All right, that's it for today. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Until next time, peace out.